Once I've finished reading it, I want to kind of un recap and give you some context as to where we're at for anybody who's, uh, who's really been, who hasn't been here. Um, but just to kind of give us an idea of, of the thrust of this passage. But I'll, first I'll just read this passage we're working through and then we can go from there. Uh, it says, uh, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." So in, in context here, we're, we're looking at the letter to the Hebrews. These are Hebrew Christians who have been facing persecution and tribulation, and there's temptation to go back to the old covenant system, the old sacrifices. So the, the main thrust of this letter is calling them back to Jesus. So the, all the way up to the first nine or ten chapters, we see kind of presenting Jesus as better than all of the old covenant sacrifices. He's the better priest. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better temple. All of these things, he's better. And not only that, but he's the fulfillment of it. So whatever we're being tempted to go back to, there's nothing there anymore. He's fulfilled it and it's gone. It's useless. It's worthless. So there, there's a lot of presentation of Jesus as the supreme high priest of our faith, the supreme sacrifice, but also a warning that for those who go back, there's only judgment and wrath. There's only the expectation of our sin and our judgment. There's no salvation left there. There's no option B. And then, and then we come up to chapter 11. We kind of have a little bit of a break where we see examples of others in the past of the history of Israel who have clung to God's promises in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of persecution and death. They've given up everything they had because of their faith in the promises of God. And so he's giving them examples of people who have faced the same things that they're facing, but who clung to God's promises as a way to call them to continue running this race with endurance. And so as we've started chapter 12, we see, therefore, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us run this race. Let us lay aside our weight and lay aside our sin. Looking to Jesus, who, who also is that example, who did this same thing. He set aside all of those things, gave up his very life, clinging to the promises of God for our sake. And then we, we enter into a part where he talks about discipline. He's putting the suffering that they're facing in a new context. Instead of them thinking that the suffering is, is basically... Uh, because God hates them, or a, a negative connotation. He's saying you're suffering because God loves you. He wants to lead you to himself. He wants to guide you towards himself. So he's saying your, your goal is not to run away from the faith because of your discipline, but to cling closer to Jesus, because there is a promise beyond this world. And he says in verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so then we begin with kind of this wake-up call. So 
we, we see that this discipline is because of our Father who loves us. We see these men who have gone before us. We have a great cloud of witnesses who have run this race. And so now we're being called to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. Actually, Levi, can you come up here and stand up here? So, Levi, can you just go into a position, if you're going to start a race, get into the position that you want to start a race in. How are you going to start? Like that? So, all right, I want you to get into this position right here, just like this. Like you're, gonna, like you're about to bolt. Like, I mean, you got to go as fast as you can, right? All right, so now in that position, I want you to let your hands just droop to the sides. And then make your knees just a little weaker. All right, so now, do you think you're going to win the race like that? No. No. So, you can sit back now. So, the, so the, the key of this is when we're racing, when we're running a race, we have to run it to win it. In 1 Corinthians 9, it actually says that. It says that we are runners who are seeking to obtain something. Uh, a runner on this earth is looking for a prize that's perishable, but we're looking for one that's imperishable. We're not just racing to race. We're not just doing it because it's fun. We're doing it because we're seeking a prize. It's that peaceful fruit of righteousness we're looking for. And so if we're running this race to win it, we have to, we have to position ourselves in a way to win this race. And, and to be clear, this race is not, uh, it's, he's not talking about just normal Christian life of how to, to do it better or be better or be more successful at it. He's talking to them about faith in Jesus. So, so the, the alternative here is, is not, we're not talking about, hey, if you don't run this race, you're going to, you know, you're, you're just going to not do it well. You're just, you're just going to be less successful than the other guy. And, he's, and the warnings we see in Hebrews, he's saying that if you are not running this race, then you will be out of the race. Because the end goal is Jesus. The end goal is the harvest of righteousness. If you do not run the race, you, you will not receive that end goal. You can't go back to the old covenant sacrifices and find that. You can't just be in a, in a middle point where, where you might go this way or you might go that way. So, so these Christians are being tempted to look at other options. Like, what else is there? Maybe there's something that's a more comfortable option for me that doesn't require me to suffer as much. And he's telling them there, there is no other option. You have, you have two options. You can endure the suffering for the sake of Jesus, just like Jesus did before you, just like all of the saints in the past did before you, or you can allow it to take you out of the race. So, and what he's saying here is lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The, the, the weak knees, that word, is actually the same word for, for paralyzed. Like it's where we get paralyzed, paraluo. And what he's saying is your knees are becoming paralyzed. You're, you're becoming lame. And he actually says in the next verse, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So they're, they're actually becoming passive in their suffering. So they're suffering instead of them clinging to Jesus and running forward and pressing forward, they're pressing back and they're saying, maybe I need to rethink this Jesus thing. Maybe I need to rethink this and figure out if there's a different way. And the whole thrust of this letter is that no, there's no other way. It is through Jesus. The entire old covenant was to point us to Jesus. And now that it is here, all of that passes away. It's but a shadow of the reality. So if you're going back to the shadow, that's all you're going to find is a shadow. You're going to find 
meaninglessness and worthlessness and you're going to find the judgment and wrath of God because all the covenant brought was a realization of how little we can do to save ourselves and how we need Jesus. So now that Jesus is here, we have no option B. We can't step back. We can't rethink this. And so he's, he's really calling them to reject passivity. He did it in Hebrews 5 because he was telling them, leave these elementary doctrines. Not, why are we having to lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works? Right? We have to delay these foundational doctrines. You should be moving from milk up to meat. Right? But what they're doing is they're, they're being stagnant in their faith because they're afraid that the more they dive into this Jesus thing, the more persecution and suffering comes. They're being tempted to step back. And he's telling them not to be passive. He's telling them to lift and strengthen themselves, right? And to make straight paths for themselves. And the word lift and strengthen, it's actually, there's only one verb in that verse. And it's anortho, and it means to make straight. So he's saying, make yourselves straight and make your paths straight. And the, the word out of joint is also a word that's used to describe apostasy in the New Testament. So the warning there is very clear. He's using the analogy of this race, but he's saying, look, he's saying, be careful because the passiveness, the weakness that you're finding in your body is eventually going to take you out of the race. It's not going to be something where you're like, let me slow down a little bit and take a breath. It's not going to be something that, oh, well, you know, I need to just take a break for a second and figure this out. He's saying that as soon as you do that, you're leading yourselves into a place where you might not come back into the race. And it's just like he says in, in earlier passages, he says, beware lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? And so he says, take care lest you be led to fall away from the living God. So he's warning these Hebrew Christians. He's saying, there's no, there's no going back. You have to choose, do you cling to Jesus or do you not? Do you want God's salvation or do you want his judgment? There's no in-between. There's no half salvation and half judgment. It's, it's God's judgment or God's salvation. So he, he's warning them here. He's calling them to action. Endure this suffering and hardship. Instead of letting it push you away from Jesus, as all the men in the past did, cling to Jesus. Cling to his promises. Because at the end of it is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If you want peace, if you want uh, comfort, do not look for it here. Do not look for it in this life. Look for it in the next life. Because if you seek it in this life and you start to forsake Jesus, then you will not find it in the next life. You will not find that at the end of the race. So he gives us a few... Uh, a few instructions on what does it mean to make ourselves straight and to make our path straight. What are these straight paths? He tells us in verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So it's interesting, peace and holiness, one is kind of a relational thing of, of our relationship with others. right? And the other piece is holiness is, has to do with our relationship with God. And it's kind of like when Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. These are the two great commandments, right? This is the straight paths. Is, is when we love others as God has loved us and we pursue to love God and obey his commands, right? So loving God, serving him, obeying him, and loving others, this is the straight path. This is the, the simple way that we can 
keep ourselves on this race, right? If we, if we step out of that, we're basically putting obstacles in our way to trip us up, right? If, you, if anybody has ever been running as fast as they can in a yard and then they hit a pothole, like it does not feel good and it can end up very badly. So this is, this is the same thing. This, it's a danger to be stepping out of loving God and loving your neighbor, right? But this peace is not just a, uh, hey, everything's good between me and the people around me. It's not just a uh, passive, uh, pacified relationship. Peace actually means order. It means that there is an order to the relationship with God. And I think it's, it's very important considering the, the verse 16, and there's kind of a juxtaposition. There is peace and holiness, and then there is sexual immorality and unholiness. Right? So he's putting these two against each other. The straight path is peace and holiness. And the, the crooked path is sexual immorality and unholiness. And we find sexual immorality is at the core of disordered relationships with other people. Right? When we do not, when we do not put it in the right order, when we do not treat other people the way God has designed us to treat them, including ourselves, our wives, the opposite sex, when, we're, when we put them into disorder, we find vile practices that, that dishonor God and dishonor people, right? So if we want peace with people, we treat them the way God has created us to treat them, including cherishing and honoring our wives, right? So on Father's Day, our goal as a father is to follow our family, submit our family to God's order and God's design. That's what brings peace. In 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about the spiritual gifts. He says, God is not a God of disorder or confusion, but of peace. Right? So those two are, are, are juxtaposed again. And even in James, he says that the wisdom from above is peaceable, but he, all, he says that the, the wisdom from below that is demonic comes from uh, jealousy and selfish ambition, and it says from it comes every disorder and vile practice. So we see that peace comes from God and submitting to His Word. It's not just making things right on the surface. It's setting things in the proper order that they're to go. When we disorder things, that's when we find conflict, right? So sometimes we find ourselves in conflict with people who have disordered relationships, right? And so peace doesn't just mean making those people happy. It means declaring God's word over that situation, submitting to God, loving God, and loving others by speaking the truth to them, by serving them, by sacrificing ourselves to them, for them. So, so peace and holiness is juxtaposed with the sexual immorality and the unholiness, right? This is the straight path and the crooked path. These are the things that are in your way that can lead you closer to God or lead you to Find yourselves not running the race as you should. So he's warning them. If you want to run this race well, love God, love others. Okay, Stay away from, from this way. And then we find this, this, these three pieces of this, of this passage that talk about apostasy. So I already mentioned that the being put out of joint is, an, is one of the words used for apostasy when people are wandering away from the truth straying into false lies or the people who have the itching ears who want to be tickled instead of hearing the truth. 
It also says in verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The root of bitterness there isn't talking about being bitter towards people. It's actually a quote of Deuteronomy chapter 29, and it says, Beware lest there be any among you any man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So this is just a repeat of this command to, to the people of Israel. It's talking about serving other gods. It's talking about worshiping other gods. It's not talking about uh, our bitterness towards people. It's really our bitterness towards God. So the sins, the, the sexual immorality and the unholiness, are not the core issue here, right? God hates sin, and, and He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. But the, remember, He says, Beware, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The, the, the challenge here is the sin begins to put roots of bitterness in our hearts. When we allow sin to remain, when we do not deal with the sin, when we become passive to our sin, then sin will, will not be passive in our hearts. It will, it will be acting in our hearts to work us against our Father who loves us. That's why He disciplines us, right? As we suffer, He begins to show us the meaninglessness of the things in this world, right? Our sin wants to tell us that these things are, are meaningful, that comfort and convenience and relationships even food, money, fame, power, wealth. All these things are meaningful to us and we should sacrifice for those things. And we should give everything away for that. That's what sin wants us to believe. But what God is doing, He's causing us to suffer. He causes us to lose those things so we realize that this world cannot please us. Right? So we have a choice to cling to those things. Right? And then we become bitter against God because He took them away from us. Instead of realizing that God is trying to show us that there is something beyond this world that nothing in this world can satisfy. So we enjoy food. We enjoy our family and our friends. And we enjoy money. We enjoy these things. But they are all enjoyed only in submission to the God who gave them to us. None of them are more important than Him. And if we put them before Him, we find that root of bitterness. Because He will then take it away from us and we will hold it against Him. Because we believe that the only reason He loves us is because He gives us those things. Right? We're attaching our love for God with our comfort and our convenience. But if we, if we love Jesus, if His love is in our heart, and if we believe and put our faith and trust in Jesus, then what we say is that no matter what is taken away from me, I have Him. And then we find that the reverse happens. That we have a joy and a peace that nothing can alter, that nothing can take away. We have a comfort that nothing on this earth can affect. So we actually find the reverse of this root of bitterness. But he's warning them that you cannot be passive when it comes to sin in your life. You cannot just allow it to remain. It's not going to sit there and just enjoy itself inside of this little place in your heart while you do the rest of your life. You can't have... Uh, holiness and unholiness just sitting in their right places, right? It's one or the other. It's going to grow and it's going to be a root 
that bears poisonous bitter fruit and it's going to damage your walk with Christ. So he's warning them, just like Esau, who, who sold his birthright for a single meal, right? It says that he gave up what God had given him for a single meal that would last just a little while because he was, and it says in, in Genesis, he was growing faint and he needed some soup. So he gave up the blessing of God for the soup, right? And, the, and this birthright was not salvation. The birthright was Jesus, right? So in context here, we're talking about faith in Jesus. This is the promise of God to us. And so what we're saying is Esau saw this meal as more important than Jesus. And so, again, the juxtaposition of giving up what is temporal to receive what is eternal or giving up what is eternal to receive what is temporary. And so when we see that he found no chance to repent, it's not saying that, uh, that any of us are in danger of as soon as we sin, then we have no, no hope of salvation, right? For anyone who is looking to Jesus and asking for forgiveness, confessing their sins, it says we have an advocate with the Father. But for those who are going back to the old covenant practices and repenting at the old altars, sacrificing lambs, there is no repentance there, right? So when we reference Romans 9, it says that Israel pursued a righteousness that is by the law. They were seeking repentance and righteousness through the law, but they did not obtain it. But the Gentiles, who did not pursue it by the law, they pursued it by faith, and they received it. So it's not just about repenting. Repentance does not receive salvation. It is repenting to Jesus. It is repenting from dead works, right? In, in Hebrews 6, he's saying the, the elementary foundational doctrine was repentance from dead works and faith to God. Repentance from, not sin necessarily, but dead works. Repentance from doing works to receive salvation from God. This, is, this was a key piece of, of the Judaism that they were facing that they were trying to go back to. Let me go back and get salvation through sacrifices and through obeying the law. And he's telling them they're dead. They're not alive. You cannot receive salvation. So if you go that way, you will have no place of repentance. If you go there, your heart will be hardened against him and you will be seeking repentance in a place where you cannot find it. And then, finally, we have, we have this last piece that says, uh, For you know that afterwards he desired to inherit the blessing. He reje was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so he, he's talking to these Hebrews who know, they know their history. They know where they came from. We see all through Hebrews, he's quoting the Old Testament constantly. This blessing that they wanted to inherit the blessing of, of salvation, of election, all of the promises of God, the Jews thought it was through following the law. But within all of the old covenant promises was ultimately the promise of the coming Messiah. And he came and he fulfilled those laws and now everything else has passed away. And those who truly loved God, who truly believed with faith, they let go of those things because they saw that the Messiah was here. But there were those who rejected the Messiah and even killed him because he, he threatened 
their place. He threatened the righteousness that they were looking for, which was through the law. But clearly here we're seeing that, that our righteousness and our salvation didn't come through those things. It didn't come through our works. It didn't come through our status or anything we can achieve in this world. It came from the great high priest, Jesus, who died on the cross for us, who gave himself up for our sins. And it's because of that that we find salvation. It's because of that. So he's warning them. He's telling them, look, you cannot, you cannot play games with this. There's no place where you can just take a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then you're good, right? Like you just, just go down the cafeteria, pick what you want, and then, and then you're good, right? He's saying, no, it's, it's all or nothing. If you're running this race, you need to run it well. You need to run it to win it, right? So a, a part of that is believe in Jesus. That's, that's the key piece is, is that you're not, it's not about works. It's not about doing this or doing that. It's about your faith in Jesus. And our, our sanctification process is believing more in Jesus, is giving more of our heart, more of our bodies over to Jesus so that he can redeem our lives and redeem our hearts. So it's, it's really all about trusting in Jesus. I'm going to close with this verse from Luke chapter 3. It's talking about John the Baptist. It says, John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So our salvation is in Jesus alone. It is He that can make the crooked straight. Even now, as we are allowing ourselves to, to let our hands droop and our knees become weak because of suffering, persecution, tribulation, Whatever pain we're experiencing, it's so easy to let that bitterness come in and ask the Lord, you know, why is this happening, Lord? What are you doing? What's, if, if we can be tempted to question and, and lack trust in, in Jesus, right? And to be clear, it's okay to say, Lord, how long, right? How long before that you let the enemies of God uh, persecute us, right? There's a difference when you start to mistrust in the promises of God though when you start to say is it even there right are you even going to do it right so in the Psalms we know you're going to do it Lord I just want to know when right I don't want to know how long is it going to be but we God gives us a place to weep and mourn and 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 seek him and pray but he what he says is the danger you're facing is when you suffer when you start to question his promises, when you allow that root of bitterness to come in. And he's saying that as we're running this race, that's a crooked path and it can lead to your body being put out of joint. So, he's, so how do we strengthen it? Love God, love others, trust in Jesus. He will make you straight. He will make your path straight. His path is the only path that's straight. There is no other way. You can't come in through the back door. You got to trust in Jesus. You got to believe and he will redeem you. He will bring you 
a straight path. He will get you to the end. And that's the beauty of it, is if you feel tired in the race, it's really our faith in Jesus that gets us through. It's not your, your physical strength. It's not even your spiritual strength. It's your dependence upon the grace of God. That's, that's the grace we have is, is our faith in Jesus. And the beauty of it is every day his, his mercies are new. Every day we can say, Lord, I need you to get through today. And he gets us through. And if you trust in him, you will make it to the end. You will continue. You will press forward. Even if you don't feel like you can do anything, right? And sometimes it's okay physically to just take a break. But never let your faith take a break. Never lose your hold on the promises of God. Because everything else can pass away. But Jesus does not change. He does not fail. He will always be there. And he's the only one who is eternal and unchanging. And that's, that's the message to the Hebrews. That's the message to us. Is that do not go back to the things that never provided you with, with the, sal- the satisfaction you could have. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Right? Satisfaction comes for, through our hunger and our thirst for righteousness and our faith in Jesus. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us, Lord. I thank you that while we were all on a crooked path, you made the way straight, Lord. You brought us out of darkness and into the light, Lord. And there are so many dangers around us and there's so much unbelief surrounding us, Lord. And it's so easy as we suffer to to lose our trust in you, Lord. But, but we know that with your Spirit's power, you can make us stronger. You can make us straight, Lord. You can lead us in the right path, Lord. So that's what we pray, Lord. We recognize that anything we can do, anywhere we can go in this earth, anything we can receive is, is something that just passes away, Lord. And it's only useful to us and helpful to us as it leads us closer to you, Lord. And you are the giver of all good gifts, Lord. And so we trust you as the only one who can do this work in our hearts, Lord. And if there's anyone here who, who, has, who has lost their faith, Lord, who, who doesn't believe because of something that hurt them, Lord, or someone who has never believed simply because of the pain and suffering they felt, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them your great love and your mercy to them. And that everything that they've gone through is something that that you're allowing to happen because you are a good, loving father. And we trust the discipline of parents, Lord. As it said in the previous passage, Lord, how much more will we trust God who always has our good in mind? Because you're worth it, Lord, and you love us. So help us to believe in you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.